We're right at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. The passage that we read today, God makes an accusation of his people, and to a large extent, everything else in the book kind of flows from that. God, speaking through the prophets, has this complaint. They'd stopped asking, where is the Lord? Not in the kind of accusatory sense we hear today that goes something like, hey, everything's gone wrong, where's God? But in the sense that they'd stopped framing their everyday lives by asking, where's the Lord in this? How is he leading? What story is he telling? Despite his undeniable goodness to him, they'd forgotten God, as he says at one point in the passage, and ceased seeking him. I'm just going to read a section here from beginning in verse 5 from Jeremiah 2. What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an ab abomination. Even the people who had true cultural authority in that day, the ones in charge, were living outside the bigger story. The priests, it says in verse 8, in verse 8, the priests did not say, where's the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. They had entirely lost the thread and they were no longer living within their story, or more precisely, they were no longer telling or living within his story. Their story and God's story were disintegrated. And I think this is incredibly relevant to us in a post-Christian America today because in a day of hyper-individualism and identity invention, we're encouraged, if not expected, to write our own unique story, making it up as we go along, and it's not working. It's a little like building an airplane without plans while you're flying it. And the cultural consequences are both predictable and real. Here's just one. It may not be the worst one you can think of, but it's serious. When offices shuttered across the country in March 2020 and millions of, Amer of workers submitted to mandatory stay-at-home orders, many employers and or many employees were forced to work remotely. Overnight, organizations had to pivot to a virtual first or virtual only mode of operation that happened to us at Redeemer. In a matter of weeks, our kitchens and bedrooms became our offices. And most of us were wearing only shirts uh, <laughs> on Zoom and pajamas on the bottom. Uh, well, I'm not going to say most of us. I was. 
but in a matter of weeks, our kitchens and bedrooms became our offices. For some, the sudden shift meant more than bringing work into their home. It meant that they wore the hats of professionals, school teachers, and caregivers all at once. I love what Jim Gaffigan says about uh, distance education um, when uh, his kids were at home. He said, my kids certainly kept their distance from education. <laughs> But for others, the time that was previously spent attending and volunteering at church or dining out or attending concerts with friends or sweating it out in the gym was suddenly freed up. Our lives became basically unrecognizable, triggering a widespread reevaluation of the meaning of work in our lives, which is not a problem to reevaluate. But many have concluded that it really doesn't have any. Beyond maybe paying the bills, it's basically meaningless. And so people, and by the way, people, by people I mean white-collar knowledge workers, not tradesmen, are simply leaving work behind in staggering numbers. The FAQ section around the initial introduction of the Green New Deal talked about how the United States should, quote, commit to guaranteeing a job to all people in the U.S., and promise livable incomes for those who are, quote unquote, unwilling to work. Not unable, unwilling. They obviously have never read 2 Thessalonians 3.10. You can look that up on your own. This extraordinary and unprecedented trend chronicled by the New York Times over the past year in a series of articles entitled The Great Resignation is built on the implicit belief that work itself is wrong or a mistake, that humans can't both flourish and work. Work is seen today largely, if not mostly, as meaningless. And I would contend it's because we've forgotten a story, much like the people of Israel. Because this is entirely antithetical to the biblical story, which insists that work is integral to a flourishing and worship-filled life. And I believe that beginning to move from meaninglessness to meaning is as simple as just reframing an ancient and mostly forgotten perspective. And wouldn't that be a great gift to us and to the world? And I really feel like at the end of summer when we're kind of ramping up to, to go back into a normal work year and a school year is a good time to talk about how this fits into God's story. Because our current attitude toward work is absolutely not how God intended it. And to understand this, we have to do something radical, which is a Latin word that means from the root. We have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 2, 7 and 8 and 15 says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man. Why? To work it and to keep it. 
The most notable thing about this passage is that it takes place before the fall. Most Christians I've talked to don't know that work is not the result of sin. It's part of God's original design for humanity. The Hebrew word work here is very important and multifaceted in the Old Testament, and we're going to explore that in a minute. But let that sink in. Work is literally one of the key things that we were created for. It's right, it's right there. God created you and me to work. And that's really only the beginning of the story. Adam started out tending a garden, but God had much bigger plans in mind. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve's dominion over the garden was to expand into dominion, not domination, dominion over the whole earth. By producing godly offspring and teaching them to work, they were to subdue all of creation. The language of subduing and ruling mirrors what God did in creation, turning chaos into order. And so Adam and Eve are to further order creation, and it won't happen by magic, but by concerted effort. In other words, work. And by the way, there are only two kinds of work, and they're not meaningful and meaningless, the categories we mostly use. They are good work and bad work. Good work is anything that brings further order to creation. Bad work is anything that brings disorder. And all good work is inherently meaningful. The bill of goods that we have been sold in our day that you have to work, your work has to be your passion in order for it to be meaningful. It's just not true. Theologians call Genesis 1, 27 and 28 the cultural mandate. God mandating that human beings make culture. Adam and Eve will produce children. Those children will create families and those families will band together into cities and social networks. Those networks of human beings will reflect all the aspects of human culture, language and art and music and food and philosophy and theology. It's no accident that the ultimate biblical picture of redeemed humanity in Revelation 21, 2, involves a city. Because a city can reflect human culture in its most developed and complex forms. God's purpose for humanity started in a garden, but it ends in a great cultural center. God fully expected the children of Adam and Eve to split the atom to write great music and literature, and to go into space. He didn't in just intend for them to have babies and trim trees. They were, not, there's nothing wrong with those two things, but that was not all of his intent. They were meant to exercise dominion over all creation, turning the entire earth into a showcase of the glory and beauty and majesty of God and then working it and caring for it for all eternity. So work was God's design from the beginning. And the ultimate goal 
for every aspect of life and culture to be saturated with the beauty and glory and love of God. Let's take a look at how this is woven into the fabric of scripture. And by the way, my mind was blown the first time I heard this. As Lawrence and my children have grown and left home, we've noticed that we have fewer and fewer stories. We have few new stories. We just tell and retell the same old stories at our table in the presence of our grandchildren. So they're hearing those stories too. And this is important because C.S. Lewis wrote, the matter of our story should be part of the habitual furniture of our minds. The big stories, the stories that shape our lives situate us. And they must be told and retold until they become like the familiar furniture in our home. Even in the dark, we can know precisely where we are. And as summer comes to an end, I just want to go back to a story many of you have heard me tell before. It's a story about two very important words. And the first word is this. The ancient Hebrew word for integrity or integral, tome, actually means seamless. And I'm going to flip things a bit here. In fact, this might seem like a non sequitur, but I want to illustrate why this is so important. For many Christians today, worship lacks integrity. And by that, I don't mean that worship has largely been flattened into singing or that they're faking it. Just that for many, worship is what we do on Sunday, but it's almost entirely separated from the rest of our week. It's not seamless. It's cut from a different bolt of cloth than the rest of our lives. Sunday and Monday are disintegrated. But the scriptures don't see it that way at all. They see worship as just one thread in a seamless fabric. And so maybe counterintuitively, as we think about a biblical understanding of work, the best place to start is by reframing how we imagine worship. Because this is where a true and proper understanding of what we'll be doing at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning begins. And I'd like to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment. Don't worry. This isn't an altar call. I'm not going to ask anyone to raise their hands when no one else is looking. Although I guarantee you, I am looking. But just close your eyes for a moment and take a deep breath in and out. And settle your body. And open your imagination. Picture in your mind the first thing that comes to mind when you hear these five words. Work. Worship. Service. Ministry. And craftsmanship. Or the arts. In coaching, I've had people draw, draw out what they imagine. 
And, and here's what usually happens. People picture five different things. Something like a computer for work, maybe hands raised for worship, people helping for service, people with other people for ministry, and musical notes or paintbrushes for the arts. But I have just one picture to describe all five. Because there's something radical about this. Throughout much of the Old Testament, just one word is used to describe work, worship, service, ministry, and the arts. And that word is avodah. And it's not that the Jews didn't have enough words that they had to use one word for five things. They had plenty. But there's an important pattern here. And this is why I have people draw or close their eyes and use their imaginations to kind of get the right side of the brain working because while the left side of our brain is really great at seeing particulars, the right side is more adept at seeing patterns. And here's the pattern. God sees all five of these, work, worship, service, ministry, and the arts, as threads in a seamless fabric labeled avodah. They're not cut from different bolts of cloth. And if we're paying attention, it has some pretty radical implications for how we imagine our day-to-day -day lives. Here's how we learn that from the scriptures. And you have these passages in the back of your bulletin. There's a handout there in the back of your bulletin. The first thread in this seamless fabric called avodah is work. And its first use is in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it to chavod it and take care of it. God is a worker, and work was created by God. It's not the result of the fall. Toil is. It's also used in Exodus to describe the hard work of God's people making bricks as slaves in Egypt. Exodus 1.14, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar with all kinds of work, avodah, in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them, again, that word, ruthlessly. And in Psalm 104.23, man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. These are just a few examples, but this is found over 400 times throughout the Old Testament. It's the rule and not the exception. Two, avodah is also rendered worship, making it a second thread. And there's a couple of instances from Exodus. Exodus 3.12, and God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that, I who have, that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me. There's that word. You will worship God on this mountain. And in Exodus 8.1, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Same word. This is why the idea of worship developed into liturgy, which is a word that means the work of the people. 
In the church today, we hear a lot about integrating faith and work, but this implicitly assumes that they're cut from different bolts of cloth, which we then kind of patch together. Integral, however, as I've said before, comes from the Hebrew word meaning at its root, seamless. Jesus said in Matthew 9, no one sews a patch of new cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making it tear worse. Trying to integrate faith and work is a little like sewing new cloth on an old garment. We learn from scripture that God created all of life on one loom, so it has an integral and seamless nature. There is nothing to integrate, and I'm not being pedantic. The difference between integral and integrate isn't semantics. It's substantive. Connecting Sunday to Monday means to see all of life as a seamless cloth, to live both privately and publicly with integrity, seamlessly, coherently, not to patch the otherwise disconnected parts of our lives together or think of some things as implicitly sacred or while others are secular. That dichotomy is found nowhere in Scripture. In fact, in ancient Hebrew, there's not even a word for spiritual because everything is spiritual. I love what Charles Spurgeon said in a sermon in 1874. This is what he said, to the man who lives unto God, and I would say the man and woman who lives unto God, nothing is secular, everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a line and say this is sacred and this is secular is opposed to the teaching of Christ and to the spirit of the gospel. And by tearing down the secular and sacred divide, we realize that God cares about everything that we do. Which is why he expected his people to ask, where is God in this? Our response to God's power and glory can come from every thought, word, and action if we steward it all to have his glory, to his glory. In honor. In this, we find purpose and fulfillment, even in the most mundane things that we do. 1 Timothy 4.4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And a verse you hear every week, Psalm 24.1, says what? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's all sacred. And what I'm about to say might seem at first sacrilegious, but what we'll be doing tomorrow morning at 10 is no more sacred than what we're doing right now. This, what we're doing right now, is different and necessary, and it's work that we're doing together in communion with each other and with the entire body of Christ. The sacraments are being rightly administered. And the word of God is being read and taught as the word of God. But it's not somehow more sacred. No, Sunday and Monday are seamlessly connected. 
Okay, so this seamless, this, this seamless cloth has a third and fourth threads, service and ministry, and they're wound more tightly together. Second Chronicles 8, 14 says, according to the ruling of David, his father, he, meaning Solomon, appointed the divisions of priests for their service, that word, and the Levites for their offers of praise and ministry, that word, before the priests as the duty of each day required service, and ministry. Abodah is used four times in Joshua 24, 15, which is the renewal of the covenant at Shechem. It's a well-known passage in the Old Testament. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestor, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The fifth thread then is craftsmanship or the arts. First Chronicles 4:21 says this: the sons of Shelah, son of Judah, Ur, the father of Lekah. Lada, the father of Merishah, and the clans of those who crafted fine linens at Beth Ashbeah, crafted Abodah. King David tells his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28:21, the divisions of the priests and Levites are ready for all the work on the temple of God, and every willing man skilled in any craft will help you in your work. Again, this one verse, in this one verse, it's rendered in two different ways at the same time as both work and craftsmanship. And I know I've, I've told you this before, but the Lord's table and the ambo designed and, and crafted by Eddie. And by the way, this is an ambo, not a lectern, because in traditional worship, there's normally a, a podium from which you read the scriptures and a pulpit from which the word of God is preached. But this word ambo comes from ambidextrous. It serves both functions. So this is called an ambo. But these two things here, Our work, art, and craftsmanship. Not only are the, the pieces that we use for worship that enhance our worship, but they are themselves acts of worship. Because avodah is a seamless fabric, and work, worship, service, ministry, and craftsmanship, and art are threads in that fabric. All these just ordinary day-to-day -day things are holy to the Lord. In the prophecy of Zechariah, we get a picture of what will be as the eyes of our hearts are enlightened and the nature of the kingdom of the heavens is revealed to us. Everything, even the most ordinary things, will be considered holy to the Lord. Zechariah 14, 20, and 21 says this. On that day... Holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and every cooking pot 
will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. Just the ordinary day-to-day stuff. That's life in the kingdom. I'd be willing to bet that most of us don't wake up on Monday morning and think, this is worship. But seriously, how would telling ourselves that story change things? I'd like to pray for us. God of heaven and earth, we pray for your kingdom to come, for your will be to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Teach us to see our work as woven into your work in the world this week. For parents at home who care for children, for those whose labor forms our common life in this community, the nation, and the world, for those who serve in the marketplace of ideas and commerce, for those whose creative gifts enrich and inspire us all, for those whose callings take them into education, law, and medicine, and for those who are unemployed and long for good work that satisfies the soul and serves you. For each one we pray, asking for your great mercy. Give us eyes to see that our work is holy to you, O Lord, even as our worship today is holy to you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.